And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and with me today to do some theoretical roster building for the U.S. Men's National Team are two wonderful fellas. Up first, it's a man who is not the least bit nervous about this final stage of World Cup qualifying. It's Joe Lowry. Hi, Joe. Hi, Taylor. No, I, I'm, I'm definitely not nervous at all in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> Listeners, I just want you all to know that before we started recording, Taylor told me and, and our mystery co-host number three, I guess uh-huh. I, won't, I won't spoil that surprise, not that you've read the description for this show, but uh, he told us that this was a two-notebook episode for him. So he's got not one, but two of the famous Taylor Rockwell note-filled handbooks out. <laughs> this is going to be a doozy, ladies and gentlemen. It is going to be a doozy. It requires two notebooks to track everything we're going to talk about. So Joe Lowry, not nervous. Joining us is a man who actually is not nervous about the USA's <laughs> final three games. Games, it's Graham Ruthven, or their gams, apparently. Hi, Graham. <laughs> Hello, Taylor. I mean, I wasn't nervous until I started going through the permutations Ooh. of the games, and um, yeah, started to as an honorary Graham. American, as an honorary USMNT <laughs> fan, started to get slightly more nervous as I worked out how the US is going to qualify. I think it's going to be okay. I think it's going to be okay. But All right. eh, maybe, maybe it's slightly uh, it's squeakier bum time than I <laughs> thought was the case before I started doing my research. I think that's about as optimistic as Graham could be in this scenario. And I will take it, though I don't love when even a neutral is getting slightly nervous for the USA's hopes. But I'm assuming that's all us just being rational and realistic ahead of these three World Cup qualifiers, which the U.S. will win all of, and then it will be wonderful. Nine-point window, ladies and gentlemen. The U.S. plays its final three games of World Cup qualifying later this month, starting next Thursday when they go away to Mexico, then it's home to Panama, away to Costa Rica to round things out. We're going to talk about qualifying permutations, do some in-depth analysis on a couple of U.S. players. The bulk of this episode will be roster construction, or our ideas about roster construction. We're expecting to get the U.S. roster, the official U.S. roster, sometime later this week. So why not spend some time today speculating wildly until then? We've got important players potentially back in the team. We've got big names missing out. We may even have some positional switching. We shall see. We'll get into all of that and more position by position. Let's start in goal. Joe, how we looking in goal? Okay, so on this roster that I think is, it's a large part of what I want or what I would do, but it's also a large part of what I think Greg Berhalter could reasonably do. So that's mm-hmm. the, the, the thesis for this roster. You're not going to see a lot of wild card picks from me. As fun as those are, I'm really not sure that the last window of World Cup qualifying is the time. Actually, let me rephrase that. I'm sure that it's not the time in, in, in large <laughs> yeah. respect. There, there can be exceptions, and I do have one or two, and we'll get to those later. In goal, though, I have three goalkeepers. There's no, um, real quick, there's no player limit for World Cup qualifying rosters. So we could build these to be 50 players. None of us did that, obviously, but, but we all have 
a pretty rough and nebulous amount to work with. Okay, anyway, preamble over. Three goalkeepers. Zach Steffen, who was back on the bench for City yesterday against Crystal Palace. It appears that he is fit and ready to play, so that is good news for the U.S. I have Steffen, I have Sean Johnson, and I have Ethan Horvath as my three goalkeepers. I know that probably doesn't match up with what maybe even you guys have and certainly what some listeners would want with Gaga Slonina, but those are my three for this final window. Uh, and then I'm assuming Matt Turner, because he's still not playing for the revolution, you're not willing to roll the dice. This would be what you're talking about previously, where it's not the time to gamble. It's not the time to take chances. Right. It's the time to play it safe. Yeah, I just haven't read anything or heard anything about Turner's recovery yet. He's still dealing with that foot injury. I've read weird things on Twitter that, that could be true or maybe not true about this being a St. Paul World Cup qualifier against Honduras induced foot injury with how cold it was. I have no idea if that is true or not, but that just goes to show we don't really know what's going on. We just know that Turner hasn't been playing. And until I read something that, that changes that fact, I don't think he should be in this roster. I was, I was going to make a joke about Matt Turner still being frozen from watching the, <laughs> yeah. the game at Gillette Stadium at the weekend. Then you mentioned the game in St. Paul there, Joe. And I'm, now I'm thinking, does cold weather maybe follow Matt? Is he like some kind of footballing, like Anna and Elsa from Frozen? <laughs> Like he brings the ice with him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it is also Graham. Anna doesn't have those powers. Okay, yeah, sure. Yeah. Ideally, for a goalkeeper, he is not letting it go, however. Uh. Just to continue that one, I apologize. Uh, Zing. I would, instead of uh, physically hurting Joe Lowry with my puns, I will instead say, Joe, I agree with you for the most part. Uh, we might get that expanded roster. As you mentioned, it might be 23, it might be 28, who knows. And I think we may see one or two extra goalkeepers called in. Yeah. So we maybe see Matt Turner called in just to see how he's doing. And then that's a late scratch or he doesn't actually play. Or maybe he does play if he's fully fit. But I think I'm with you. It seems unlikely that he is coming in and starting right away or starting training. And I think Slonina as well could be called in. But seems pretty early to give him a start. Seems like an opportunity to basically go with the veterans. And then you can uh, play around with things later on. Maybe Slonina is involved in this roster, but I doubt we see him play. Overall, I think that top three is about where I am. Graham, uh, any differences for you? Not not really. I think um, whether I have Slonina or Horvath, that was the, the choice that I, I settled on, depends on how fit Stefan is for me. So yeah. Stefan, having been on the bench, at, uh, I was going to say the weekend, it was actually on Monday, for City against Crystal Palace, if he's fine to play, then I probably do have Gaga Slonina in that squad just on the assumption that Stefan's gonna gonna play the, the the games that matter and you might you might end up with a scenario where the US have qualified after the Panama game or maybe you know, who knows, maybe even after the, the Azteca game and then, then maybe Slonina gets a, a start in that final game against Costa Rica if that is a bit of a dead rubber by that point. But yeah. if Stefan isn't fit enough, then I'm probably siding with Horvath a, a little bit more just because he's slightly more experienced and you might be more comfortable with him playing some so important games. So, yeah, I think that's where I am with it. I'm pretty much in agreement with the two of you, yeah. And, and I do think from everything I've read, uh, Stefan had the back issues, then shoulder issues, but on the bench uh, on Monday, seems like he will be good to go. Joe, if he's not, Graham said he leans Horvath. Uh, do you have a preference if we don't have Turner, if we don't have Stefan? Uh, I don't have a strong preference, no, but I would probably lean myself towards Sean Johnson. I don't I don't know that I have a really solid reason for that. I like maybe his distribution a bit more than Horvath, but I think both are solid but not great goalkeeper. Sean Johnson was a net for NYCFC at MLS Cup. He's played in big games before he's playing in, in CONCACAF Champions League games right now, you know, over the last few weeks I should say. Um and again tonight for NYCFC. So he's played some 
in different places and in Central America. Ethan Horvath obviously comes up big for the U.S. in the Nations League final against Mexico over the summer, stops a penalty, just a really great performance from him off the bench. And I'll add with Horvath, he has now taken the the starting goalkeeper job at Nottingham Forest over Bryce Samba, who had a red card and he was the starting goalkeeper. He had the red card about a month ago. And then Horvath just hasn't given him the job back. He's been in net for Nottingham Forest since then. So Horvath is certainly in form and has the trust of that Forest goalkeeping staff and, and coaching staff. But I think I go for Sean Johnson just, you know, maybe going with experience and, and some of that distribution ability. All right. But I think overall the takeaway is Stefan, if he can go, uh, Turner, maybe if he can go. But if not, it's sort of is a toss up, but no strong opinions really one way or the other, unless Graham is fully Horvath ride or die. Nah, not really. <laughs> <All right. laughs> to to be honest, I think I think the US are are, are pretty well set for decent goalkeeping yeah. options. Like Johnson, even Slonina, yeah, yeah. I know I know he is young and he's a teenager and if you're throwing him into the Azteca, that is there's a risk element there. But three clean sheets to start the MLS season, like he seems to be a good option as well. So I, I, it doesn't really concern me. It was something that yeah, sure. In terms of my power rankings, I don't know how I would order them really, but it, it's, it was probably one of the, the, the last things I thought about when constructing this roster. All right. So a few different options uh, in goal, many more options in defense. One of those will not be Chris Richards. Uh, he has been injured since the last window, hasn't played since uh, World Cup qualifying last time around. So it seems very unlikely we see him in this roster. Same goes for Mark McKenzie, has not played since, I believe, late February for Genk. So not in form, not playing. I don't think we'll see him. Maybe he ends up getting called in, but I doubt we see him play many minutes. The question mark remains, Joe Lowry. What about John Brooks, who has missed, I believe, the last two windows? Seems like there's some stuff going on behind the scenes that we're not aware of, and maybe that extends to club as well, his contract not getting renewed with Wolfsburg, so we'll be a free agent at the end of the season. Joe, will he be in the roster, or at least is he in your roster? He is in my roster. All I, right. I would be surprised if he was in Greg Berhalter's U.S. Men's National Team roster. He has not played for the U.S. since September. I mean, that was the very first window of qualifying it would feel at this point out of character for him to be involved in this roster. The only thing, though, I will say, Taylor, to how you'd led me in there with no Chris Richards and with mm -hmm. no Mark McKenzie, there are spots, certainly, because if it's not John Brooks making out the rest of this, this center back core, who is it then? Right. So my four, just to peel back the curtain, I've got four center backs here. I have John Brooks on my list. I have Miles Robinson on my list. I have Walker Zimmerman and then I have Aaron Long. Who, who has not been involved with the U.S. a ton recently, although he has started to make an appearance and get back into the fold in 2022 after dealing with that Achilles. I believe it was an Achilles injury. Maybe it was ACL. Shoot, I should know this. It doesn't, it doesn't make any difference. He's coming back into the fold. I would add him to this group. He's Aaron Long started all three games for the Red Bulls to start the MLS season. He's someone that Baralter knows and clearly has a rapport and relationship with. And I, th I think even if someone like Mark McKenzie were available, I would still go long over McKenzie. So I, I think it, in this window, you value experience when there's not a huge quality difference between the two players. And I think long is good enough to make up the rest of this center back core, along with Miles and, and Walker and John Brooks. Joe, one clarification there. So if you're saying you think Brooks should be called in, but you're also saying you don't think Burhalter will call him in. If Berhalter does not, right. would that be considered a mistake in your mind, or are you not as surprised by that one? Well, I mean, this starts to come down to, okay, well, what actually happened here, mm -hmm. right? As as I think yeah. Graham mentioned, you know, we don't fully know what's going on here. It feels very weird 
that this all went down with John Brooks and Greg Berhalter and John Brooks literally put out a statement to follow. I mean, it's just a strange situation, right? Mm -hmm. That happened towards the end of 2021. So I don't think we can say definitively this is a mistake without knowing what's going on. Yeah. My read on that, and I agree with you, my read is basically maybe there was some personality stuff, maybe there was a behavioral thing. The larger issue I would guess is that it seems like Burhalter has kind of fallen upon Zimmerman and Miles Robinson as True. his two most likely starters. I think each of them has started five of the USA's six wins in qualifying, so a good reason to start them. But that makes me wonder if John Brooks maybe just isn't interested in being a backup, or he's not interested in sitting on the bench, or maybe... Berhalter is just uh, choosing to uh, make his team not as good as they could be. That could be the decision as well. You never know with Greg Berhalter. Uh, but I'm with you. It would make sense for Brooks to be included given some of the injuries. Other possibilities would be Eric Palmer Brown, Tim Ream, and Cameron Carter-Vickers. Graham, yes. I don't know if he made your list. I'm wondering who you had as your center backs. Yeah, so I don't have many um, kind of wild cards in, in my selection. Yeah. I've gone for 28 in my roster, um, just to wind it back a little bit, with it being a a three fixture window and I believe the last roster was also 28 so there, there is precedent for that so I don't have many wild cards Cameron Carter Vickers could be considered one of them because I it feels like Berhalter's not going to select them for the roster given yeah. how this this World Cup cycle has gone already but I've gone for Zimmerman Robinson I've also gone for Brooks as well Joe in, in my roster and in my fourth center back when I went through the depth chart and I looked at Aaron Long and I think Tim Ream has played for for Fulham like quite well uh, recently so he was in my consideration Um obviously Mark McKenzie's not getting minutes at the moment so <clears throat> excuse me Cameron Carter Vickers was was in there and I and I, when I looked at the cases for each of them Obviously, Carter Vickers is someone that I watch week in, week out in, Scot uh, in Scotland. I needed another centre-back for my roster. Richards hasn't played since January, so he probably fills this spot if he, if he is fit, uh, Chris Richards. So Cameron Carter Vickers, he's playing almost every game for Celtic, who are top of the Scottish Premiership. He's getting better over the course of the season. He's getting better with the ball. So he's playing for a Celtic team under Postacoglu who are playing this really possession-heavy game, and that has always been one of the... The black marks against Carter Vickers is that maybe he's not mm -hmm. as comfortable on the ball. And you certainly saw that when he first joined Celtic. He's getting a lot better at that. He is Celtic's um, kind of dominant centre back at the moment. He's, he's physical. I think he brings a lot of the, the traits that the US are, are looking from, from what I have seen of him at Celtic this season. So I don't think he's going to get selected, but he's in my roster. Like he's what I think I've got two, two and a half wild cards in my roster and he <laughs> yeah. is. He is one of them. So yeah, he does he does make my selection. But you've both gone with four, the difference being uh oh no, you had you both had Brooks, so the difference would be Joe had long and Graham had CCV? Yeah. All right. Yeah, I mean I think I think I'm I'm somewhere in between those two, because I think it is probably it is definitely Zimmerman and Miles Robinson, they will make it. Uh and then it probably should be John Brooks like just because we know he has the talent he has been there previously he's played in a world cup but I also won't be surprised if he doesn't end up getting called up and I know that will be a very frustrating thing for a lot of fans it's a thing that everybody will point to and maybe that's a reason Burhalter does call him in just so he can avoid that one but that hasn't really been Burhalter's sort of approach thus far so I have it as Similar to Joe, I have it as Robertson, Zimmerman, Long, and then it's really a toss-up for me. In the end, I think it will be Brooks, but I also would not be surprised at all for it to be Tim Ream. And yeah. since each of you has a difference, I will go with Tim Ream, although 
if he starts Tim Ream and Walker Zimmerman, I won't be able to tell them apart, and we'll just assume it's one <laughs> player having an immense game. Oh, yeah. And maybe that's the way to do it as well. Get so much flow on the field at one time. Tim Ream still has that flow, right? I, I actually haven't watched Tim Ream in a little bit. But get those two guys at center back, and then get John Tolkien at left back, and we have the oh, ultimate yeah. flow back line there. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Death doesn't really have flow, but you get the idea. <laughs> Uh, Graham, what about for your fullbacks? This one's always a little strange because I tend to like the evenly balanced two right backs, two left backs, four center backs. Uh, U.S. usually playing in a back four, so that balances, but it doesn't seem as though that's what Berhalter always wants to do. <laughs> yeah, uh, no. Graham, what have you gone for? Yeah, so I have I have tried to strike a balance, but I have to say, through this process, I maybe do have slightly more sympathy for Berhalter. That was obviously one of the, the, the big criticisms of his last roster was, ah, there's a, a pretty big imbalance here between the left and right backs. But I, I've gone for, I mean, no surprises, I've gone for Sergino Dest. Um, I've gone for Anthony Robinson, who are probably the, the two first choice left and right backs at this point. I've then gone for... Um, I know there's a, an element of versatility to how Reg Cannon can can play, but he, he you know he can play on the right side. He's been playing on the on the right side of a, a, a central three, defensive right? three for yeah. Bovista this season. So Reg Cannon, I'm I'm counting him in that depth chart for the fullbacks as well. Um, and then my other two are this is maybe where we, you get into contentious a contentious area because everyone has opinions on this. But I've gone for. Joe Scally, who maybe wouldn't have been in this roster a few weeks ago, but um, he's he started the last two matches at right back for for Gladbach, so he's playing he's playing for that team again. I know they have been in free fall recently, as we've covered on on weekend review, but they get a win at the weekend against Hertha Berlin. Joe Scally plays ninety minutes of that game, so he makes my roster. And then um, another player who, who's followed a similar arc in terms of their first team football this season, or at least this year since they made a move in January, is George Bello, uh, Armenia Bellafield. I understand he has also been in and out of that team, but um, he has regained his starting spot. Similar to Scali, he's re- regained his starting spot in the last couple of weeks. And for the sake of, of balance, I needed a, an actual left back. I, I, I would still have Dest as my deputy left back. Yeah. And then if we had if we had to change Robinson, rotate him out, or he's injured or suspended or something, I would still move Dest over to left back and have an, another option at right back. Because I think the US have got better options at right back than left back. But I still felt like I needed a natural left back to be behind Robinson. So Bella was the, the guy that I went for. So if Berhalter's calling you, Graham, and saying, what roster size should I go with? Did you have three goalkeepers and 10 defenders then? So you've got so four centre-backs. three goalkeepers, nine defenders. So four, four centre-backs and five full-backs. However, I would say ah, yeah. Bello is probably just the if-something-goes-wrong option. Yeah. I'm thinking COVID cases here. So um, yeah, that's I've gone for nine defenders. All right. I, I, that is a... A safe idea, and I like it, Graham. I appreciate the the uh, the calmness of that one, Joe. What about you? What have you got for fullbacks? Yeah, so listening to Graham's explanation just yeah. had me bump up my roster from twenty six people to twenty seven people. <laughs> I am bringing an extra fullback um, as of right now, so we're changing this on the fly. All right. Sergio Dest is my starting right back. Jandre uh, yep. Edlin will also be a, a right back. And then Joe Scally, I have in there as well. This is one that I don't think Peralta will do. Scally was yeah. called in, I think, back in November and then just not called up again after that. And Scally told, I believe, ESPN that he hadn't really heard anything from Greg Peralta. So we're not sure what's going on there. But I, I like Joe Scally as a player, and I think he could actually help this team in the right situation. So those are my three right backs, Dest, Yedlin, Scally. 
Scally and Dest can both deputize on the left if needed, but they probably won't be because I'm bringing two left backs, Anthony Robinson as the, as the first option and Sam Vines as the other one. He's playing for Royal Antwerp, playing pretty regularly for them. He's been called into World Cup qualifying already uh, throughout this cycle. I think I just prefer Vines to Bello, but Graham and I are kind of splitting hairs here because we both agree that Robinson is, is the guy at that spot. So it stands to reason then where, because I'm, I'm somewhere in between both of you as per usual. It feels like a lot of this roster, Joe, is going to be a thing that you and Tom Bogert talked about previously. There are names that need to be there, and then there are names that could be there, or maybe you think should be there, but aren't necessarily required to be involved. So it seems like as long, it sounds like you both would agree that as long as we have Dest, as long as we have Anthony Robinson, that's like kind of the basic, the base level. And then after that, there are different options. So the disagreement would be, uh, Graham had Cannon, Joe has Yedlin, you both have Scally, and then it's Bellow versus Vines. Yeah. Uh, I will yeah. forever vote for Reggie Cannon. Uh, that's just my own bias. I will own that one. I think I lean towards Bellow between Bellow and Sam Vines, but admittedly we haven't seen Sam Vines, or I haven't seen, seen Sam Vines enough to really say that with any level so, of confidence or any level of belief. So full disclaimer, I had, I w- I think there's so little between a lot of these options that I yeah. had Yedlin in my roster for a long time and then mm-hmm. realized, oh, I, I have, I think I've got six fullbacks now. I probably need to change out one for a, <laughs> another center back. And that's how Carter Vickers came into my roster. So that, all that to say is like when Joe's saying Vines and Yedlin and, and maybe Bellows falling out, like I don't really have a strong opinion once you get to that level of the depth chart. I don't think there's all that much b- between them. I would have Cannon at the top of the, the, the depth chart. I would have Dest, in terms of fullbacks, I'd have Dest, Robinson, then Cannon. Um, but beyond that, I'm, I don't really have that strong an opinion. I think all these guys are, are pretty decent options. Joe, yeah, for, for you, is the Yedlin selection a what you think Berhalter would do, what you would prefer he do, or a combination of the two? I think it is both for me. Uh, mm. I, I want to say Reggie Cannon here. I want to say even, heck, start, start Joe Scali for one of these three games. But as I sat here making this roster, similar to the goalkeeping situation, I asked myself, who am I most comfortable with starting a really important game in this cycle? And for me, if it's not Dest, it is DeAndre Yedlin at right back. I don't think he's the best player, but I, I think Scali's probably a better player player, at least in some respects. But Yedlin covers a lot of ground. He's versatile in in that way. He gets forward. He's proven himself with the U.S. in the past, whereas just some of these other options I don't think have, have been as good in different moments. Yedlin started you know, game, a game against Mexico over the summer, right? So I think it's that experience that really comforts me, and maybe that's a, a bad way to look at things. Maybe that's a, an overly one-dimensional way to look at it, simplistic way to look at it. But that's what I find myself drifting towards as I made this roster. All right. Any other points to make about defenders before we move on to the midfield? I don't think so. Gramuel? Nope. I think we covered it all. We've sorted it. Everything (laughs) is fine. All right. Everything's sorted. Everything's fine. We'll take a break to feel comfortable in everything being sorted. We'll be back to talk about that midfield. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? 
Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back, gentlemen. It's time to talk about the midfield. I'm not excited to talk about the midfield because we will be without Weston McKinney. Uh, broken bones in his feet out for the rest of the season. And he is a really, really sizable loss for the U.S. Did not realize quite how sizable until I looked at what's been going on in World Cup qualifying. He started seven of the 11. One of the four he didn't start was when the U.S. was in a back three and a four to one win at Honduras. So of the three games he has missed where the U.S. played with the kind of 4-3-3 shape we've come to expect, they had a one-to-one draw with Canada at home, a one no loss at Panama, a one-to-one draw at Jamaica. We definitely tend to miss his dynamism, to miss his, to miss his attacking ability, his willingness to get forward. I don't quite know how we replace that, and I think this is an area where we might see some experimentation, some positional switching. But Joe, uh, before we get into what they might do, let's talk about what they will do. And I'm assuming what Berhalter will do in your mind is call up Tyler Adams. Yeah, of, of course. Yes, that is something that I feel very confident about. I will say, though, Adams apparently dealt with a little back pain midweek uh, this past week, but he did come off the bench for RB Leipzig over the weekend. So it, it seems like things are OK there. But Tyler Adams continues to be worryingly injury prone, and I don't anticipate that's going to change anytime soon. I have him as one of my sixes. I have Kellen Acosta as the other six. He's playing as an eight with Steve Trundolo and LAFC, which is not what I think Greg Berhalter in the U.S. would have wanted to see because he's, I think, so clearly been a lot better as a six for the U.S. than he has been as an eight. And maybe we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But I think he still has to be in this roster. And for me, he absolutely has to be a six. I don't want to see Acosta at the eight. We've seen that enough before, and I don't think we need to see it anymore. My eights, quickly, Yunus Musa is is one, and he's a bona fide starter in this group. Again, without Weston McKinney, he's got to be in there. Luca De La Torre is in my group. Paxton Pomichol is in my group. That's maybe a little bit of a wild card. We haven't seen Pomichol in World Cup qualifying so far. Gianluca Busio is in this group, and Christian Roldan is in this group. So it starts to get, at the end of that that group, it starts to get a little thin. And it certainly is thinner than it would be if Weston McKinney were involved. You probably wouldn't see Pomichol, one of Pomichol or Busio. Maybe you wouldn't see either one of those guys, and this would look different. But I've got two sixes, Adams and Acosta. I've got five eights, Musa, De La Torre, Pomichol, Busio, and Roldan. I want to talk more in depth about uh, Kellen Acosta, obviously, in a bit. Graham, first, I want to hear where you are on that midfield. I'm guessing there is some overlap, but not complete overlap. Uh, no, there's complete overlap. No <laughs> way. No way. So, Joe, we have exactly the same. Because my roster is one person bigger, I have eight midfielders. And I think the person you didn't mention was Sebastian Legette. Yep. yep. Um, so that I've got Legette in my midfield roster. But other than that, <laughs> we're exactly the same. We've gone Adams, Musa, De La Torre, Acosta... Busio, Roldan. I thought Pomico was going to be my complete wild card, but Joe, you've beaten me. You've beaten me to it on that one. And then I've got Legit in there as well. So okay, I, I have my... questions. I have questions for you. Sorry, Taylor. I'm stepping on your no, feet no, no, here please, hard. Please. I'm stomping on them, both of them I love at it. the same time. So, Graham, I, I know we've talked about Paxton Pomico on this show before, and we've even done mm-hmm. that together, right, with Taylor. I want to hear your reasoning for that, though. Why do you have him in this group? Why do you think that he's a good enough player that Baralter would bring him in now in this last window. Not that I agree, not that I disagree with that premise because we surely sure. both agree, but I'm just curious to hear your thoughts. So my reasoning for kind of pulling him up from the, from the, the depth pool, the, the squad depth pool was that McKenney in this, in this squad, there are a number of players who, if they get injured or they're unavailable, suspended, whatever, 
there's there's someone else who can come in and do that job. Tyler Adams, as good as he is, Kellen Acosta can come in and, and, and do that job. Maybe there's not so much of a drop-off. McKenney is a player in this, this midfield, certainly, where I struggle to see yep. who does that job. And I'm not saying Pomico is, is the guy to come in and certainly do that job at the Azteca or a must-win game against Costa Rica or even the Panama game. But because he's not in this roster you have you have to pull someone up from or you have the opportunity to pull someone up from the pool and from everything i've seen of Pomico this season for fc dallas and everything you've explained joe and you've kind of won me over with a lot of your uh, sales pitch on him um i'm just having him in to even if it's just to get him used to this to the environment you know having a 28 man roster gives you that opportunity maybe he doesn't um, play maybe he comes on for minutes in the in the last game if that is a bit of a dead rubber which obviously we're all hoping to be the case uh, please bring for that <laughs> situation to to, uh, to 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 happen but yeah that's I I really liked what I've seen about Pomico is is kind of dynamism what he brings to the center of the pitch and and also I just feel like in that midfield three he probably he probably can work in in that unit you you know with Adams and Musa he's got a little bit of protection he's got that support system around him he's he's maybe not going to get dropped right in into a, a double pivot um as might be the case in other teams so yeah he he um he made my my midfield eight the map midfield book it baby book it <laughs> let let's stick with Kellen Acosta for a moment because Graham you said the drop off from Adams to Acosta isn't that great or isn't so great mm. that is a statement that uh taylor from last week would have taken strong <laughs> issue with taylor from last week has been doing some reading and is maybe confronted by the idea that his bias might preclude him from seeing the vulnerabilities in tyler adams game and when we don't have weston mckinney suddenly those vulnerabilities are exacerbated because i don't know who plays the ball forward i don't know who is good as like an adventurous midfielder who can carry the ball, that leads to maybe some positional experimentation uh, in my roster. But for you two, what do you see as being sort of the strengths in Kellen Acosta, the reasons why there isn't such a huge drop-off if he does have to play as the six? Graham, why don't you take this one first and I'll fill in behind you. Yeah, sure. So are, are we kind of skipping ahead to we were going to do a, yeah. a little bit of analysis, right? So we'll just skip ahead a, a little bit to analysis of, of Kellen Acosta. Think? I think... Um, in terms of, you said Tyler Adams, maybe one of his weaknesses moving, not moving the ball forward enough. I actually think that is one of the strengths of, of Acosta, particularly when I was looking at the statistics of, of, of his game. So he's in the 82nd percentile for progressive passes per 90 minutes. He's also in the 77th percentile for through, uh, for through balls per 90 minutes. And I think that just underlines how valuable he can be in breaking the lines through his use of the possession. Now, of course, as Joe mentioned, he has been playing as, <clears throat> excuse me, he has been playing as a, as a as a number eight for LAFC. So maybe some of those numbers are skewed by that slightly more advanced position. Um, he would likely be pay, playing as a, as a number six for the US. Certainly, in the scenario we're talking about, where he'd be coming for Tyler Adams, he'd be playing as the six. But I do still feel like earlier in his career, the fact that he played, I remember when people talked about Kellen Acosta as uh, this kind of like. Um, they wanted him to add goals to his to his game because it was it was felt as the last thing that that could be added to his game before he became like the perfect attacking central midfielder. We've kind of moved slightly on from that, but there's still elements of that adventurousness to his to his game. I also think he offers really good protection, so he's in the. I guess that's one of the key reasons why people now view him as as a number six. He's in the 77th percentile for tackles per 90 minutes, the 88th percentile for percentage of dribblers tackled, which is is a good quality to have if you're stopping other teams in in transition. Um, 
And um, yeah, I think in a midfield three, it's important to to have someone like Acosta to provide a platform for others further up the pitch. And then maybe one of the most obvious things, which we have definitely spoken about on the pod before, is how good he is from uh, from set pieces. And with Gio Reyna still recovering from injury, he's probably the best set piece taker, or certainly the most consistent, reliable set piece taker the US have right now. He's in the 82nd percentile for dead ball passes. Obviously, that is just a a, a crude number you can't really read that much in, into it but he got two assists from set pieces for the US in the last qualifier against Honduras and I think that is almost enough enough for Acosta to be at the top of the midfield depth chart if we're looking beyond that MMA mid- midfield unit which is well established at this point the US has a lot of players who are good at getting into attacking or sorry attacking set pieces in the box so Zimmerman, Wes McKenney who I know is not available for these games. Uh, John Brooks, if he's involved, he's good at attacking set pieces as well. So having a supply line for them, I think is, I think is really valuable. So yeah. I, when I looked at Acosta, I already rated Acosta pretty highly, but he is in a lot of ways similar to Adams, and I, and I would be quite happy with him coming in for Adams if that if that has to be the case at some point in over these three games. Graham, when you talk about the defensive numbers, uh, do you think of him? as being a quick player who's able to kind of put out those fires or is he more positionally aware and able to kind of recognize I need to slide over into this space to prevent that pass from happening or to be in a closer position to then make that tackle is it quickness or is it awareness um he's not I mean maybe my my perception is incorrect here Joe or or Taylor if you have any thoughts on this jump in but I, I don't he's not a He's not a chaos presser in the way that Tyler Adams is. Mm-hmm. I think Tyler Adams ha- has more um, lateral coverage of the pitch. He, to me, Adams is probably a more, a slightly more energetic, probably slightly quicker. I, I don't really have any numbers on like the straight line speed of either player, so I'm kind of I'm stabbing in the dark. Slightly and you here, told my... me you were going to go out with a with a stopwatch and a spit speedometer, <laughs> and you were going to track this. Yeah. Like what we need we, to do we, is we, we need to replicate... millions of dollars to do this, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> we need to replicate that Nike advert with Ronaldo racing the Bugatti Veyron. Exactly. Uh, with Tyler. That's the only way you can measure this. You know, the only reasonable way to do it. <laughs> I, I think he's yeah. he's slower than than Tyler Adams, yep. but I'm willing to be persuaded on that. Otherwise, is that you guys' impression as well? For me, Adams is quicker in short distances, and, and Acosta probably equals him over longer distances. And I, I, right. I mean, I don't really know how we're supposed to tell that for sure. But that's my guess from watching these two players. Yeah, that, that, that sounds about right to me. Joe, so Graham may be less concerned about that drop-off from Adams to Acosta. Do, do you share that sentiment? Uh, I mean, I think it is a drop-off, certainly. right? There, there's things that they do differently. We just mentioned maybe a little bit in the running styles. Acosta has his own strengths and weaknesses relative to Adams. I mean, Adams is... I think a little bit quicker on the ball. He doesn't always play the ball forward. I think back to that Canada game, the, the way game in Hamilton, I don't think that was a very good game or, or even a very good window for Tyler Adams on the ball. Agreed. But Acosta has a skilled right foot and we see that on set piece deliveries, which is huge, as Graham mentioned, really, really huge. But I, I think he is a little slower to make decisions sometimes. Uh, he takes an extra touch or he does this or he does that. And I think that slows down his game. He also at times really struggles with ball progression and, and struggles. I know Graham mentioned that he has good numbers in that respect. And I think that's true. Uh, but I think we've seen in games with the U.S. in the past where I mentioned they don't want to see him as an eight. He struggles to find spaces to pick up the ball. 
which then creates a lack of opportunities for the U.S. to then play forward. I think back to that away game in Panama, Acosta is playing as a six in that game, not an eight. But he was really poor, really, really poor at, at opening up and playing forward. He and, and Matt Turner and the center backs in that game and the positioning of the fullbacks, they all created this, just this nightmare and buildup. And that is a slight concern that I have with Kellen Acosta. Yeah, he pings the ball around against Honduras at home. But can mm-hmm. he do that in a higher profile game? I, I don't know. And yeah. I'm not even sure that he'll need to, right? There's so much context here. If Acosta goes out and starts against Mexico at the Azteca, which I'm not mad at to save Tyler Adams for what I believe is the most important game of this window against Panama at home in Orlando, I think you're probably not asking him to do a lot of really precise passing. You're asking him to, one, cover ground, which he's good at. Two, uh, drive the ball into open space occasionally defensively, which I think he's good at. And three, serve the ball in on set pieces. That is, I think those three things will be his primary responsibilities in a big game like that, or really in, in most games for the U.S. And I think he can do that stuff pretty well, and, and he can do that job in a different way than Tyler Adams. But it depends on the opposition as to whether or not it's a worse way or better I, way. I think Tyler Adams has a has a much higher ceiling as a as a technician, as a as a technical player. I think he is a has more technical ability than Acosta. I think um that Honduras game, Honduras were just giving Acosta so much space. Oh, yeah. We probably saw the best of him as a you know, as someone pulling the strings. He was playing those nice little clip passes in behind for um Timothy Weah. And we pro- that was probably Acosta at his absolute best for the US, but you're you're not gonna get that sort of space, certainly away at the Azteca against Mexico, Mexico, you're not going to get that sort of space. And I do think Adams is a is a more press resistant player than than Acosta, probably due to his just his superior ability, technical ability on the ball. If we're listing Kellen Acosta's ideal position, central midfield, obviously, would you all say he is more ideally utilized as a number eight or a number six? Six it has to be the six for me. Okay, uh, Graham, yeah. I I would agree with that. I I, I like elements of the mm-hmm. of the position he's playing for LAFC at the moment there was the, the I watched um live the game that LAFC pl- played recently against um Colorado and his his um his position was really interesting in that game because there were there, there was points when he was dropping in between the center backs to pick up the ball and then there were other points when Sanchez was the one who who was dropping deep as 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 the number six, and and um Acosta actually wins a penalty in that game from a from being played in behind, over the top, you know, as as a a true kind of attacking midfielder, or even just as, a, as an attacker in that game. So there are some elements of it that I like, but yeah, generally speaking, as a number six, certainly in this USMNT pool, he's he's a number six, I think. So to add my couple of thoughts, I agree with everything you all have said, and I think you've summarized Kevin Acosta well. I watched uh, different clips, different specific things from his MLS games so far this season, and I think there are similarities between what we've talked about with him and what we've talked about with Luca De La Torre, in that he can play those balls, he can find those those pockets of space, but I think he tends to be very good at that when he has more time on the ball, as do most people. And I think that extends to the Honduras game, which we've already talked about, that when you give him time when he's not under pressure that extra second or two to pick his head up and find the pass or make sure he's hitting it the exact right way he wants to that really benefits him when he has to play faster when he has a defender on his back that's where I saw him either taking a heavier touch when trying to turn and make something happen or getting dispossessed by getting knocked off the ball or just playing very safe right back to the center back or a lateral pass to the other midfielder not really gambling and I think that can work if that's what he's being asked to do. But if we're utilizing him as a shuttling number eight who's facilitating attacking play, I have some concerns about that. 
which is maybe the way I transition into talking about some flexibility we might see in this roster. Because if we are going to go with Adams and Acosta, let's say we do have them as two of our starting three in that midfield. Joe, who do you see as being the midfield creator, the player that can most handle having that creative responsibility? Okay, so I'm sorry. Is this in like a double pivot situation or... Yeah, that's about that's kind of how I see it. Maybe you don't have it that same way, but I I think against Mexico, I do think they should start Tyler Adams. He has started so many games throughout qualifying, and I think we've seen him play back-to-back games or sometimes even all three games in a window. So I think he can handle that. I think with with the McKinney absence and against Mexico away, you're going to want just a bit more defensive stability through the middle. You don't want to leave Tyler Adams exposed. And so I could see a scenario in which Kellen Acosta is nominally a number eight, but oftentimes sitting in as a double pivot in that midfield. So I guess the first question is, could you see that happening? And the second question is, if so, where does the midfield creativity come from with that third spot? I could see a double pivot happening. I don't think it's very likely, but I could see it happening. But Taylor, the way I see it happening is without a 10 in front of it. I see it Mm -hmm. happening with wingers tucked inside, like Baralther always has his wingers tucked inside at this point of, of his tactical iterations, right? So we've seen that double pivot in the past. We saw it even in bits and pieces against Mexico in the Nations League final. We saw it in the first half against Honduras and in this World Cup qualifying cycle. We see it with really out of a 3-4-3 for the most part, right? It's it's two wingers tucked in underneath a nine, and those players are the ones that are supposed to be providing the creativity. So I don't think we'll see a lone attacking midfielder. It's not impossible. And if we're going to have someone do that job, for me, it's Gio Reyna who's going to do that. It's not... Yeah. It's not Musa. Certainly it's not De La Torre. It's not Pomaco. It's, it's none of those, those eights really that the grammar I mentioned. It's Gio Reyna. And if it's not him, I don't think there's anyone in the pool really that I would back. Okay. Not in the pool, right? And no one in the, the relatively recent list of players that have been called up to qualifying that I think that would do that job outside of Reyna. Let's put a bookmark in that one, because another player that we're going to talk about at length, I I think could maybe be in consideration there. Uh, But Graham, anything else to add either about Kellen Acosta or about a midfield three you would like to see uh, in this window, ideally against Mexico? I've got to be honest, I'm struggling with who I'm going for as my McKinney replacement in in this midfield. If I'm Luca De La Torre, having played well against Honduras in the last qualifier, I'm thinking my my, my case is, is is pretty strong. Away at Mexico at the, at the Azteca, maybe there's more room in transition through the centre midfield. And as we've spoken about previously, I think that's where De La Torre is, um, can be most dangerous when he's allowed to carry the ball forward. So that could be quite useful. I'm, I'm still... Not wild on De La Torre because I feel like he doesn't do a lot of the kind of creative things that McKenney does in that midfield. So maybe you do shift it to a more of a 4-2-3-1, but then that feels risky at this point in yep. the window to do that. So I, I don't really know. I know that's a terrible, terrible answer on what, what to do, but uh, maybe Delatore away to Mexico and then for the Panama game, I'm bringing in potentially Brendan Aronson to play in that in that midfield trio, which is maybe the thing that I've just pulled out your bookmark, I think, Taylor. <laughs> you, you may <laughs> well have. Uh, my friend, Joe, do you have any thoughts on who you would like to see start against Mexico in the midfield? I'd like to see Count Acosta at the six, especially with Tyler Adams on a yellow card for, from earlier in this cycle. If he gets another yellow in that game with the Azteca, then he's out. He's suspended for the Panama game. Two yellow yeah. cards equals uh, one game suspension in qualifying in CONCACAF. 
So that's a, another huge reason why it started Acosta at the six. I'd, I'd love to see Adams against Panama. So I've got Acosta at the six against Mexico. And then I think Musa and De La Torre would be my two eights. They give you some ground coverage. Musa obviously is a pretty much an every game starter for the U.S. at this point. Filling McKenney's job is not easy and De La Torre won't do that, certainly. But I think he brings you mobility and some creativity in that midfield group. Joe, if you don't mind, can you just repeat after me real, really quickly? Can you say the name Acosta? Acosta. Can you say Roldan? Roldan. And can you say Legette? Legette. Okay, I'm now going to take those and superimpose <laughs> them back into your answer just so that all of Twitter will be furious when Joe advocates oh, for that starting three as funny. your midfield against Mexico. No, I would, you I would respect the heck out of that, Taylor. That is just <laughs> diabolically genius. <laughs> well, on that note of me being a diabolical genius, one more break. We'll be back to talk about our attacker attacking pool as well as some permutations, some scenarios for qualification, for hopeful qualification back soon. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Welcome back. We are going to talk about the attack for the United States in the upcoming World Cup qualifying cycle. Some of these positions are fairly set, I think. And then there's a whole lot of question marks. Graham <laughs> Ruthven, who are the players that you are most comfortable saying will be involved in this uh, squad? Okay, so I'm going for most comfortable to least comfortable, Christian Pulisic. Um, obviously, just a few weeks ago, there were some questions about him for club and country. But he's in very good form for Chelsea right now. Um, I think it's a given, yep. obviously, that he's going to be in this roster and is probably going to play, get a lot of game time as well over the three games. Uh, Timothy Weah, uh, another, a player that we have discussed at length on the pod, what he offers to the, to the roster in terms of width and directness. And I like the balance that he provides on the right if Pulisic is on the left. Um, 
in terms of this is where it starts to get tricky in terms of who's <laughs> most comfortable. Yeah. I think Jesus Ferreira. So we covered in last week's pod what he brings to the to, to the pool in terms of his movement, a lot of link up play. Um, I think his skill set is slightly unique in the in the pool at the moment. So he makes my uh, my my selection pretty comfortably. I think Brendan Aronson, uh, who's been in, in decent form for Red Bull Salzburg, did well against Bayern Munich in the Champions League, uh, despite a pretty bad defeat for Salzburg and, and over those two legs, gets a, an assist, I think, in the in the first leg. Um, so he's in there. Uh, this is where it gets very tricky. So I've gone for eight attackers. Obviously, I've gone for oh a 28-man roster. So there's there are quite a number of options there. So my final uh, four... I've gone for Gio Reyna, despite the fact that I am conflicted on whether to rush him back or not. I think just having him in there as an option, you have to. If he's if he's playing for Dortmund, which he did at yeah. the weekend, I know he comes off the bench, doesn't play much, but I think he, he should be in this roster. I am begging Berhalter not to rush him back because <laughs> I do think he needs time to just recover and reset his body a little bit, but he's in the roster for me. 270 three, minutes confirmed, got it. <laughs> <laughs> final three... Ricardo Pepe, I know he's had having a tough time at Augsburg right now, but has done enough in this cycle to to make the the pick. Uh, Jassy Zardes, um, we covered his his qualities a few weeks ago now, but it's maybe slightly unique, gives a, a, a different option. And then my final one, who I feel quite strongly he should be in the in this roster. I've saved him for last for dramatic effect, not because I think he's last in my in my depth chart, but as uh, as Jordan Peefock, mm-hmm. who. I he's undoubtedly in terms of numbers he's the US is most informed center forward at the moment he's got six goals in his last seven games for young boys he's got 17 in the Swiss league um top scorer in that league at the moment and I just think this is going to make me sound like a very proper football man I I just think having a confident center forward who knows where the goal is which the US at the moment don't have many of those I think there's a value in that and particularly if it's a 28 man squad roster then I'm having Jordan Peefock in there. Um, so, yeah, that's that's my eight. I like it a lot. And I like the tiers of, like, Pulisic Wea, we're pretty confident. Ferreira Aronson, mostly confident. Reyna, somewhat confident. And then we've got the wild cards in the back. And I'm with you, Graham. I was asked this last weekend if Peefock should be in the roster, and I said no, that we should stick with kind of the people that are familiar with the system that Berhalter seems to have worked out of, like, some level of confidence in or with. But Pivok, I'm with you, and everything we talked about last week when we scouted him and, and kind of watched him in depth and some of the things, or when I was watching him, I thought he brought a lot to the equation, a lot to the table, and I think he really could be an important player. I think he does a lot of what Burhalter wants that forward to be as a drop-in link-up play, number nine, but then yeah. also a, like, stretch the line and get on the end of things. I think he can do both, so... I'm with you in the end that he is in form. He can score goals. He's a leading goal, in the, goal scorer in the Swiss League. I had him in my team. Joe, is Pifak in your team? He's not. No, All he's right. not. But I, I think Fine. it is a very so Joe, good argument for why he should be. Joe, I am, I'm genuinely interested as to why. Like, I, I, yep. I, I, this is not me being combative. Like, can you, can you please explain that to me? Because it, it is slightly baffling to me that he's probably not going to be in this roster and a lot of people, including yourself, don't have him in the roster. Like, what's the reasoning? So I think there's a few different pieces here for me. The, the first piece is familiarity, uh, that he doesn't have a ton of familiarity with the U.S. He's been in, in multiple camps, right? So Baralter knows him and knows what he can do. Uh, the, the next thing is, I don't think he's been all that good with the U.S. in the past. He started against Canada back in, what would that have been, September? Uh, and and yeah, was so. really mediocre in that game. But as was the entire, really, U.S. team in that game. So I don't want to hold that against him too much. 
Another piece is I don't think, Taylor, you mentioned he can do a, a lot of things, and that's true. I don't think he does much pressing. I don't think he does that very well. He's not particularly quick. He's not mm. all that mobile. He doesn't have any sort of explosive speed. He has speed over long distances. But if you think about the opponents in this in this cycle, at least that first game against Mexico, I, I don't think he's the kind of guy that you want to be spearheading your press. And I don't think he will do that even if you want him to. So that's the thing for me. The other thing is I, I just don't think the Swiss league is all that good, right? So he could, he could look really good in Switzerland, but I'm not sure that that's going to translate to, you know, high level or higher level World Cup qualifiers. And, and maybe this, maybe these are all bad arguments, right? I would have no problem. I should be clear seeing Jordan Pifak in this window for the United States men's national team because I think there is virtually nothing that separates the nines from each other outside of Jesus Ferreira because he brings a different skill set. He is the the one nine that I feel confident will be in this this cycle, in this window for the U.S. men's national team. The rest, it could be PFOC. Would I be upset at that? Absolutely not. It could be Pepe. It could be Zardes. And those are the two that I do have, Ricardo Pepe and Jossie Zardes. I, I just like the idea of Zardes starting at the Azteca. I know no one else out there probably was ever going to say that. But I think <laughs> he's going to press, right? He's going to do... Where is coming for you. He's going to do the aggressive things that I think Baralta's really going to want from his nine in that game. They're going to want to cover ground. They're going to want to press. I don't think we'll, a lot of, we'll see a lot of really systemic, patient buildup. I think it's going to be a Red yeah. Bull type of game from the U.S. men's national team. And I think Zardes makes sense to do that job. And then I think about Panama... And for me, it's Jesus Ferreira who starts in that game, dropping in, trying to connect, doing the things that he does for Dallas and is doing really well right now and doing things that he's done well for the U.S. in the past and hopefully finishing off a chance or two. And then that third game, Costa Rica is almost too far away for me to game plan for. But Graham, to sort of answer your question, I'm fine if it's PFOC. I'm not sold on him as a player. and I think that's the bottom line right now. Yeah. And okay, fair enough. The one line. thing that I agree with is familiarity and bringing him, him into the the last when you know the last qualification window when everything is on the line is is a bit of a risk but i would argue that that for me that is a a failing of berhalter's until this until this point in the cycle is that pfock who has over the course of the season it's not just the last few weeks he has been consistently the usa's most reliable goal scorer hasn't been in the roster until now so um yeah i agree at this point maybe familiarity counts against him but I, I personally like a lot of what I see in PFOC and I just think having him as an option, that's always my, like my biggest concern about Berhalter. Every discussion we have about him is just, I worry that sometimes he's, he's a bit too blinkered and I want him to have more options. I want him to, if he needs to change the game, have, have the players to do that. And PFOC is maybe a player who allows him to do that, who is slightly more orthodox, slightly more, um, you know, traditional and how he plays that number nine role and I'm not saying you play him ahead of Jesus Ferreira I'd have Ferreira playing away to Mexico in the Azteca I'd probably have him playing against Panama as well I think he he's the one that I like best at number nine but just as someone to bring off the bench and you know has got a goal in them PFOC is is in there for me but I understand where you're coming from I spent the last 60 seconds or so trying to come up with a George Clinton and the Parliament Funkadelic, a P-Funk reference that would land for both of you. <laughs> I've determined nothing will land for either of you with that one. So instead, I'll no. just ask Joe. Joe, if no P-Funk, who do you have uh, as your attackers? You mentioned Zardes, Ferreira, Pepe. I'm going to assume Pulisic and Wea are in there as well. Yeah, so I have three strikers, Ferreira, Pepe, Zardes, and again, don't really care who the nines are outside of Ferreira. If it's P-Funk, I am more than fine with that, and we'll see what happens. For my wingers, I have five. Christian Pulisic, Tim Weah, Gio Reyna, who uh, I stated before, can also play in central midfield, Brendan Aronson, and Paul Areola. Those are my five. I, I really like the idea of having 
some some depth they're having at least five because Giorena is not fully fit so I think you need cover in those spots I think rotating through some different wingers in this window is also a good idea so Pulisic, Reyna, Wea, Aronson, Areola are my five. So the difference between you two, you two would be Pifok and Areola. And I think yeah. that is probably where that line will be. Uh, and it just depends on if Berhalter is feeling like the number, his number nines, his number nine options have impressed enough or come around enough to, to be in those conversations. Neither of you mentioned Josh Sargent, which I'm not particularly surprised by. Could Any be arguments too, for including him or do yeah, we think? It, the argument, Taylor, is that like, in my mind, at least, and maybe you guys disagree, there's just nothing between these guys right now. Pepe, Everything that we worried about with Pepe and talked about when he moved to Augsburg is happening right now, right? Yeah. Augsburg might get relegated. Pepe is not playing much. Even when he is playing, he's not getting chances. This is what we talked about as the reason why this move was extremely risky for Ricardo Pepe. All that stuff is happening. So if Pepe's not called up because he's not playing, I, I respect that. If Zardes isn't called up because he's not starting, I respect that. If Sargent is called up because he is playing some for Norwich, granted in a wider area, that's, that's fine. If it's PFOC, that's fine. If it's Miguel Berry, that, I mean, there's just not enough differentiating these strikers right now for me to really have a strong opinion one way or the other. One player, I feel like all three of us have varying degrees of strong opinions about, would be Brendan Aronson, uh, mentioned previously by Graham. And Graham, that is the player that I thought we could see playing yeah. in midfield. That if you were going to go with a double pivot, Joe, you've made a good argument as to why that is less likely or why we might not see that. But I, I do have faith in Brendan Aronson to be that creative central midfielder because that's what he's been doing for Salzburg so far this season. They're usually in a 4-3-1-2. He is usually that one. Uh, I think yeah. he got assists in both games against Bayern Munich. He definitely got an assist in the blowout loss and in, in the 7-1 loss. Uh, he was involved. He was involved all over the place, got the assist, and I think we saw some of what makes him a very good player in that game. He does the defensive work. He steps really well. He's aggressive in the press. He's good on the ball. He's always trying to turn and play forward and carry the ball forward. I think some of his decision-making when carrying the ball forward and when passing forward can be suspect or can be a little bit erratic. Uh, But I did have him as a potential starter in midfield, and we have seen that previously, albeit in the nil-nil draw away to El Salvador to start World Cup qualifying. Uh, And he was not replacing Weston McKinney in that game. He was replacing... Maybe I don't can't remember if Yunus Musa was eligible for the U.S. at that point. He was, but yeah, he was. It was Aronson, Adams, McKinney to start that game. That's the only time he has played central midfield. Uh, but I I like so much about Brendan Aronson, uh, Graham. I think in the past you've said maybe there's a little bit too much enthusiasm from Brendan Aronson. Do you want to pull me back to earth really quickly? <laughs> um, slightly. I just think he's he's not. He's not a tier one. Remember, we did the tiers last week of yeah. of US players, and yes. and sometimes I feel like people are are desperate to put him in that that tier one. And look, maybe maybe eventually he is in that tier one. Maybe as soon as next season he's in that tier one. Maybe he gets that move to Leeds in the summer, and he's a first team player for for Leeds, and he's doing his thing in the Premier League, and that's maybe where he 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 jumps up to that tier one. For me, he's still a tier two player. I, th- I think um, at this moment, I do have concerns about how he would fit into that into that midfield three for because f- but on the basis of everything I've seen of him for Salzburg and his best performances for Salzburg this season, whether that's in the Austrian Bundesliga or in the the Champions League this season, he has been in that slightly more advanced. Um, I'm going to call it a number ten role. Obviously, it's not a traditional number ten role. He is more of a um, you know, he's he's more dynamic, more mobile than a traditional number 10 is. 
So I I do have my concerns over whether he would be able to drop slightly slightly deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing to say is on the defensive side of the ball, he does actually offer a lot, but it does tend to be in a in a more advanced position he's in the 91st percentile for tackles in the attacking third he's in the 99th percentile for pressures and successful pressures over over 90 minutes and he's in the 71st percentile for ball recoveries um and then one final one 80th percentile for tackles tackles one so um that's maybe one of the things that makes him very attractive as a modern attacker is yes he can produce in the final third his assist numbers are pretty good his goals number goal numbers could probably be a little bit better but he um he he does offer a lot on the defensive side of the ball. I don't know whether, to continue a common theme, if you drop him slightly deeper, whether you get a lot of those qualities, because a lot of those qualities are from him pressing high and being proactive from from the front. But if Berhalter, and I don't think he's going to do this, if he is willing to shift into a 4-2-3-1 for one of these games, then I think Aronson absolutely is is a good um, a good pick to play in that advanced role. I just have my doubts in a midfield yeah. three. That that does make a lot of sense, and and Joe, that's where I appreciate you calling out that distinction between a double pivot versus the kind of midfield three with a single pivot that we've come to expect. Um, and and Graham, I think that's a good breakdown of why the more advanced role w- would work for him. And I think that does play into his strengths, the defensive side you mentioned. I just want to reiterate how much watching him, his first instinct is is to take the ball forward and to receive on the half turn or turn immediately or to let it run through his legs and dummy it and then turn and go. I love how much he is trying to make things happen to create attacking chaos and create vulnerability in the opponent that can then be exploited. I, so I really, really like that aspect of his game as well. But you're right, maybe not a shuttling number eight for yeah, the US. I, I just love how how quick he is to crash the box a lot of the times and i and and i do wonder if playing him in a midfield three you you eliminate the ability for him to do that maybe you don't maybe he's he's mobile enough to do both things you know to play slightly deeper and get into the box i'm thinking of the goal he scores against canada where he he slides in to to meet the cross from about six yards out where he shows kind of the instincts of a of a goal scorer of like a true goal scorer in the box which given what we've said about the the US's number nine options at the moment, might be a good thing. I think he also scores against Honduras, where he he makes a run into the box. Um, so I really like that aspect of his game. I like loads about Aronson's game. I do agree that some of his decision-making could could be better, um, his, his shooting statistics. Strangely, for someone who has such good technique, which technique when shooting, I think he is a very good shooter of the ball, but... Sometimes he, when there's a, there's a pass on, he'll take the shot on and it'll just go into a kind of crowd of defenders. He does that slightly too often for my liking, but he is, he is a player with a really, really high ceiling. Um, and I do think the next cycle for the US, he, he could be one of those tier one players. Joe, uh, thoughts on Brendan Aronson, what he's good at, what he's not good at and ideal positioning for him? Uh, I'll start with ideal position and I guess work backwards from there. I I would not choose to play him centrally. And I, I'm a little surprised, to be honest, that that's happened so much in his club career already. I think if he had played with any other two clubs than the Philadelphia Union and RB Salzburg, <laughs> he would have been a winger much, much earlier on because he plays as a 10 for Jim Curtin in that diamond and he presses and he's aggressive and he's vertical and he's not really playing the final ball. He's not really a playmaker, but he's doing a lot of the dirty work and being an asset in attacking transition as a vertical runner crashing the box. Then he goes to Salzburg and he's doing virtually the same thing. And he played some out, out wide under Jesse Marsh, but now under Matthias Siasla, he's playing as that, that 10, a very similar role to what he did with the Union. And because of how those teams play and, and played, 
you get a lot out of Brendan Aronson. You get that quick, relentless, annoying to play against in your face kind of presser. And you get that guy who's going to counterpress and who's going to be direct and beat you in transition on the dribble. We, we've seen that with Salzburg. We saw that with the union and we see that with the U.S. still, even though it's a wider position. He's got quick feet. As you, as you mentioned, Taylor, he loves to play forward and, and does that quickly. And he gets in the box, Graham, as you mentioned. He's really good at making those, those crashing runs on the weak side. He has truly been molded by the Red Bull way, even with the union, because you have the Ernest Tanner Red Bull connection there from Tanner's time at Salzburg in Austria. But Aronson, in my view, is not a playmaker. He does not rack up a ton of really high quality playmaking moments. Graham, you referenced the assist he has in that first leg against Bayern. We talked about it. Maybe it was just me. I talked about it on the Champions League review show after how that was like a, a nothing kind of assist, right? Yeah, it's it not. Mean it. Yeah. So we can use it as like a, a talking point, but those numbers don't really go to prove that he is a capable playmaker. And until I see him really do that for a season or even a chunk of a season, I don't think he's a guy that Berothar's going to want to play centrally because he does need some playmaking out of those players. He, he really wants something from those eights or, or if it's a 10 in a 4-2-3-1 in this reality. I think you want some playmaking ability from that 10. If you don't and say, yeah, we're just going to press and play forward and be full on Red Bull, then he's a fine option there. But I think I still prefer him out wide because of all the different pressing things he does, the dribbling things. I think you get the most out of him in those box crashing runs if he's in a little bit of a wider spot. Can can we get, is there a scenario where we can get Ferreira and Aronson into the same team? Yeah. Where you've got Ferreira you know, dropping deep, creating the space. And then if Aaron's, one of Aronson's best qualities, as we've discussed, is crashing the box, making those run in, runs into the box, then Ferreira's created the space for him. That, that feels like that could be a good union between those two if we can get them in the same team. A good Philadelphia union? Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, Graham, I'm here for it, though. I'm, I'm not mad at that at all. I don't know. It's totally possible. I don't know if we would see that or, or when we would see that in this window, but I would not be shocked or really all that disappointed if we saw it in any of these games. Joe, I have two questions for you about Aronson. One, a philosophy question. One, a reality question. The (laughs) philosophy one, if you're talking about like the way, like why he has been able to play more centrally for the two teams he has and because of their style of play, like could he, I mean, I guess he always could adapt his game if somebody brings him in to do a different role and becomes more of a playmaker. But is that where your idea that he he would be better out wide comes in? That that's not really what he does and that's yeah. not really what he's being asked to do. So it's better to put him in a position where he doesn't need to do those things. Right. We can say he's been playing as a 10 and he has been, right? Positionally, he has been. But the responsibilities of Aronson's 10 role differ so much from I, I'm trying to think of a Graham who in the Premier League plays with a four two three one. Uh, Manchester United recently. Okay, right. Bruno yeah, Fernandez. great example. Right, his his role is so different than a Bruno Fernandez type ten. Right, I mean Taylor, we can see that when we watch these two players. True. There's a night and day difference, and I think Aronson in that mm-hmm. ten role is much closer to. Baralter's winger profile than he is to any sort of classical type playmaking 10. That makes a ton of sense. The real reality, real world question would be if you have concerns about Aronson's playmaking ability, I'm assuming it stands to reason that you do not have those same concerns about Gio Reyna's playmaking ability. Correct. Yeah, I think Reyna is much more thoughtful on the ball and he still can play forward and and quickly and do a lot of things that Baralter is going to want and that, that certainly are required of him from Marco Rosa at Dortmund. But I think he's he's just better on the ball and more technical. He's a little stronger, too, so we can withstand some of the pressure that comes on you in a central position for a more possession-oriented team. Yeah, I like Reyna centrally much more than I like Aronson centrally. 
All right. So I think we, we've we've run through our rosters to varying degrees. They have varying sizes to them. Only name that we left off that could be included in terms of possible attackers would be Jordan Morris. Yeah. Uh, but I think with the depth of talent we have in those attacking positions, it basically would come down to him or Paul Ariola. Ariola has been there more recently, more often, hasn't had the injury issues, or at least not to the degree that Jordan Morris has. So uh, I think if you're picking between those two, if you're Berhalter, it probably is Paul Ariola, but maybe we see Jordan Morris. But I think there is plenty of depth in some of those positions. The number nine spot remains the concern, and it would be interesting to see them call in like, Eight or nine attackers, and four or five of them are potential number nines. Maybe that's overkill, but we shall see how that plays out. Gentlemen, anything else from the roster standpoint before we talk about scenarios and how this could all play out? I'll just well, say... Oh, sorry, Graham, go ahead. No, I was just going to make a joke that our uh, all our problems are going to be solved when we've traded for Vlavic, and also we won't have to <laughs> pick between Adams and Acosta. Sorry, sorry, Taylor, but we're giving them, we're giving them Tyler Adams. <laughs> yeah, even especially with Vlavic, but even without him, this roster, whatever it looks like, should be enough to get it done for the U.S. That's just what I wanted to end with. All right, well, let's talk about how they potentially uh, get it done. As I said, first game uh, away to Mexico, kind of a big one, kind of kind of an important game. Uh, then it will be home to Panama. So Mexico, March 24th, Thursday at 10 p.m. Yikes. Uh, then it's Sunday, March 27th, home to Panama at 7 p.m. Final game of qualifying, March 30th at 9 o'clock, 9.05 p.m., according to Google. Uh In terms of how they could go about qualifying, I am inclined to say that the most important non-U.S. game would be Costa Rica-Canada, which is the the first game of qualifying or first round of qualifying uh, for this break. That one is on Thursday, March 24th. A draw or a Costa Rica loss is ideal for the United States because it would put them into a very strong position to qualify. Uh, Joe, are you good with Canada and Costa Rica drawing? That's that's an important result. Draw or a Canada win, I think there is is huge. The other result I'll point to for match day one is if Panama loses to Honduras. That would leave Panama on 17 yeah. points, which is where they are right now. And if the U.S. loses at the Azteca, which we have to accept is a very reasonable outcome of that first game, right? The U.S. has never won there in a World Cup qualifier before. If the U.S. loses in that game, there will still be a, a four-point gap between the two. So that's not enough to auto-qualify in, in terms of distance between the U.S. and the top three and Panama in that fourth-place playoff spot. But any bit of cushion you can get there is, is really important. So the results that the U.S. needs to qualify after match day one, the U.S. has to beat Mexico. Panama has to lose to Honduras, and Costa Rica has to lose or draw to Costa Rica. So that is possible, but fellas, to me, it doesn't feel very likely. That's a lot of things that have to go right. You have to make history at the Azteca. You have to have Panama lose to the worst team in the Ocho, and then you have to have Costa Rica lose or draw to Canada, which is very possible. But those first two feel pretty darn difficult to happen, to, to see happen. It is. I think I have said for a couple months now that maybe my specific prediction for the year was that the United States would beat Mexico at the Azteca. That would be a hell of a way to start this round of qualifying. Joe, I'm with you, though. It requires a lot of other things to happen. Honduras, I believe I'm correct in saying, has not yet won a game in qualifying. They have three points, all three of which are draws. So they would have to win their first game in qualifying. Costa Rica would have to get past Canada, who I believe have won five straight in, in terms of their recent history. So that one does seem like it's going to be a little bit more challenging. But I'm hoping that we do see Canada get that result, because then I'll feel much more confident about the USA versus Panama. That will be the big one from a U.S. perspective, and that is where they could, uh, I believe, officially qualify. Is that right, Joe? 
Yeah, and that's why I've been putting so much emphasis on this Panama game because yeah. if you look through the most likely outcomes, beating Panama at home gets you almost all the way there. So if if we play this out a little bit and say on match day one, the U.S. loses to Mexico and Panama beats Honduras, that is entirely possible, right? That means that Panama is going to be on 20 points and the U.S. is going to be on 21 points. So U.S. will just have a slight edge there. So if the U.S. then beats Panama in Orlando on match day two, that means that the U.S. will be at 24 points and Panama will be at 20. That's a four-point gap headed into just one more match day, which means that Panama cannot climb above the U.S., which means that almost certainly it will be a Canada, USA, Mexico top three in one order or another with the USA and, and Mexico there. The only thing that throws a wrench into that scenario, Taylor, yeah. and this gets back to your importance, the, the importance that you're placing wisely on the Canada-Costa Rica game on match day one, is if, if Costa Rica has a perfect window, they jump yeah. from 16 points to 25 points, which puts them ahead of the U.S. because to finish out that perfect window for Costa Rica, they would have to beat the U.S. at home in Costa Rica, which, to be clear, is possible. Mm-hmm. The U.S. doesn't really want that to happen. So if Canada takes care of business on match day one, it doesn't matter. The U.S. is in with a win over Panama. I believe, hopefully I got all my permutations right there, but I think I did, guys. Uh, I believe you did. And I would say Costa Rica famously was the most difficult place for the United States yeah. to get a result in their old and the old Saprissa Stadium. They never won. I think they never even got a draw uh, when they've moved to slightly more modern, more more accommodating environs. The U.S. has been able to get some results here and there, but it's still a big uh, ask. It is a tough task. It's a Costa Rica team that knows how to get results, that knows how to kind of frustrate and find a way through. They did it in multiple World Cups. They could do it here in qualifying. Uh, I would still have faith in the U.S. to figure it out and get that result that they needed, but I think I'm much more hopeful that things go right against Panama and we're not really having to sweat all that much, if at all, about that Costa Rica game. Uh, Graham, we, we've kept you silent for long enough. Your thoughts on qualifying permutations or any games you're particularly excited to watch? Go for the win at the Azteca. Maybe that's just the <laughs> yeah, man. maybe that's just the the red blooded you know football fan in me I like coming it. out. But yeah, like that this this young brash group of American players have Mexico's number. So the only thing to be fearful well, there's two things to be fearful of. One is <laughs> McKenney's injury. The other thing to be fearful of is just the environment in itself. The Azteca, obviously, it's. One of the, the most famous stadiums in world soccer. That, that atmosphere, it's a place the U.S. has never won it's, in qualification. Hold on, sorry, Grand Pause. It, we should have mentioned this earlier. It's going to be different this time around. I believe in... I'm checking again, it right now. Okay, thank you, Taylor. <laughs> I don't think there's going to be any fans there for that game with the issues that Mexico's had in the past with their oh, home really? crowds for national team games and the recent violence in uh, Querétaro. I don't right, believe that okay. they will be allowed to have fans. There could be a difference there between Liga Mekis and, and the Federation. So maybe that's that's the case. And of course, we wouldn't wish these fans to be out of the stadium. It's a horrible situation. But that is a, a factor. It has to be a factor when we're talking about the atmosphere. To your point, Graham, of the U.S. going out there and trying to get a result, it I don't think will be the same this time as it has been in the past at the Azteca. I, I, I just think that... So if we game it out... A U.S. victory over Mexico, and that it just it, three points is pretty much almost enough to get the U.S. The, U.S. there uh, to Qatar. And um, sorry, I'm just trying to work out my permutations <laughs> in my head as I'm speaking. It's very difficult. So I think that Canada Costa Rica games on the same night, right? Yep. So Canada win or draw in Costa Rica, 
Um, that is pretty much job done. Um, and I know that's a lot, there's a lot of things to happen there. If, if, I believe if, and this is very unlikely, if Panama on that same night lose to Honduras. Then job is done for sure. I believe that's it done. Yeah, exactly. Like that is officially done. So US victory over, over Mexico, a Panama loss to Honduras and a Canada winner draw in Costa Rica and the US are on their way to Qatar. I just think, like, go, go for it. Like, especially if there's, if there's no, no fans, which I just, as you say, Joe, like, I, I don't really want that. I'd actually want more of a spectacle. Of course, yeah. Particularly if the US get that win at the Azteca, you want it to be as special as possible. You want it to be, to be in front of the Mexican fans. But going on, going on the way that this rivalry has been recently, the US have Mexico's number and, I, and I don't think there's all that much to fear. Joe, I don't know if it will be behind closed doors. I think I had read okay. that reporting as well. Uh, Mexico played their two games in January behind closed doors because they continued to do the homophobic chant. Uh, I, it seems like they have reassured U.S. soccer about safety of the players, safety of the staff, but I don't see much reporting in the way of closed doors. So maybe that's a decision that hasn't been made. Sure. Maybe it won't bleed. The club situation won't bleed into the national team. Um, but that is definitely something to keep an eye on. Either way, I think it will be a strange game in Mexico, because I think Mexico are going to feel a lot of pressure, not just because they're in a similar position to the U.S., they too are not safe, uh, but also because they have had such a poor run of form, as Graham mentioned there. I think it's going to be a more emotional game, and that's saying something that I think we've seen from the U.S. and Mexico in a while. I do still think these games... Like Panama needs results. Costa Rica needs results. Mexico, I think, would would like a result. Maybe they're okay with a draw, but I think they too will be pushing for a win. And I think there will be opportunities for the U.S. to play against teams that are more open than they're used to in World Cup qualifying. And maybe that suits them. Maybe that just gives them a little bit more time on the ball, a little bit more opportunity to pick out some passes, to make some runs, to get in behind, to get some goals, hopefully. So I am cautiously optimistic but mostly just excited about these upcoming games uh gentlemen uh what else do we need to talk about when it comes to qualifying permutations the cycle itself rosters anything else that we need to mention before we can call this one discussed everyone just calm down Is my advice. <laughs> yeah. Breathe. <laughs> yeah, that is, that, and that is where like like I think Joe I understand where you're coming from with the like rest some players for the game that you need to win. And that does make sense if that's how things play out. If we were to lose to Mexico, but then we beat uh, Panama and that ends up being all we need, that's great. But the other scenario would be rest people against Mexico, then don't get the result against Panama. And suddenly the the easy attack would be, oh, you didn't play your best players. They, they got to be able to handle multiple games. That's what a World Cup's going to be like. And I could just see that level of frustration building not saying that that is why Burhalter would or should do that but i am inclined to say yeah take it to mexico with with the team that is as strong as you feel comfortable playing like maybe we're not starting Gio Reyna in that one for example but i would rather go in and have a, a tight loss but still be able to have a strong team against panama if not the strongest freshest team versus a two or three no loss to mexico and then you've got that strong team for Panama, but what has been done to your chemistry and sure. your sort of confidence? I, I would be worried about that trade-off a little bit. Yeah, my closing thought here is I, I, I personally would not play a full-on first-choice lineup at the Azteca mm-hmm. and risk burning some key players out for the home game against Panama. But I'm not really sure, guys, that there is this super clear yeah, starting fair. 11, right? There, there might be a clear starting 7 or, or maybe 8, 6, 7, 8, somewhere in there. But I think there's a ton of wiggle room for this U.S. team right now, which is not the best thing, but it does sort of 
work around this issue. Well, there's not Weston McKinney and, and Christian Pulisic. Maybe mm-hmm. after his struggles with the national national team in the past, maybe you save him for Panama anyway. And that was always the plan. Gio Reyna is probably maybe I shouldn't say probably not ready to go for the Mexico game. So maybe you bring him off the bench and start him against Panama. You can fudge this a little bit and, and still totally go for it in Mexico. But with maybe a slightly more aggressive pressing style that could fit players like Brendan Aronson and Tim Weah over players like Pulisic and Gio Reyna. And you rotate subtly in that way. Maybe you rotate three guys, one in midfield and two in the front line or, or something like that from game one to game two. That could end up getting the best of both worlds here. But at the end of the day, I'm glad that I'm not the one making these choices <laughs> and making these decisions. Me as well. I would be more comfortable with you making those decisions than me, Joe. But I'm glad that I'm oh, not making man. them either. Oh, uh, Graham, I would also be comfortable with you being the uh, the head coach of the U.S. I'm, sure I'm here for it. <laughs> yeah, you'd bring the, the kind of like dour confidence. That's a phrase I'm going to make. Uh, and, and I would yeah. be, I would be into that as well. Let's let's get each of us in charge of one game and see what happens. I call it Panama <laughs> oh, game. Gosh. Yeah, the, the 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 danger in that is that I don't really have a, a horse in the race, so I'm just going to favor chaos in every single <laughs> game, which could be entertaining, but I'm not sure it gets you to a World Cup. All right, so we're going to give Graham the Mexico game then and just create chaos. Joe, you get Costa <laughs> yeah. Rica, the, the potential must-win game. We need Joe there to be the responsible, calm, uh, strong head on the shoulders. Oh, gosh. I'm, I'm, now I'm scared. Graham, you told us to take a deep breath. That's just not going to happen anymore. I got work to do. Joe's got work to do. We all do. We will talk more about this U.S. team. I am very confident ahead of those uh, World Cup qualifying games once we get that roster. But for now, gentlemen, thank you very much, Graham Ruthven, for taking all the time to po- talk about the United States and spend very little time talking about Scotland. I'm sure that was painful. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I mean, you guys are basically. We don't have a playoff anymore, Scotland. So this this is my this is my there playoff. I'm, I'm fully on board. I'm an honorary American. We're doing it, Joe. We're we're getting him on board. He's coming over to the good side. He's coming over to the good side. Joe Lowry, who's already been on the good side. Thank you as well, my friend. Yeah, the evil laugh I just did combined with you saying the good side doesn't really fit. But anyway, Taylor, yes, thank you for hosting and doing the great job. Yeah, the bad side always thinks it's the good side, too. That's the nature of things. <laughs> Listeners, true. thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again very soon. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.